Welcome to another edition of the Long Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen, pastor of Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in all sorts of ways. Good to be back here with you again for our Tuesday morning look at God's Word, trying to find out what His two words have to say to us. This week, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament reading for this upcoming Sunday's lectionary texts. Unlike the last four or five weeks in which we've looked at the epistle reading, we're spending some time looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Probably a story familiar to anybody that's watching this that is familiar with their Old Testament, because indeed it's about a character that's quite popular in the Old Testament, namely Elijah. But before we dive in, I do want to acknowledge that, yes, the background is different. We are not in my office that is filled to the brim with in-and-out propaganda, amongst other things. But, in fact, we are in a beach house because I am speaking at a sort of resort beach community for this next week called Ocean Grove in New Jersey. But I figured, nevertheless, I would still try to bring God's Word to you this morning. So, without further ado, let's dive into 1 Kings chapter 19. And let's note right up front that this is, well, it's a passage <laughs> that best describes maybe a victory followed by a seeming great sense of defeat. And what we're going to find out is that, well, just as in life for the rest of us, it doesn't take long for even great mighty prophets to fill the exact same way. It's all too easy in life, isn't it, for us to in one moment celebrate our victory and yet just even a day later, minutes later sometimes, feeling like it's all over and that we've lost again. And this is one of those passages where Elijah is prone to that. So what is happening in Elijah's life? Well, uh, in the chapter right before what we're going to read today, he has this most epic encounter with the false prophets of Baal or Baal that have led so many of the children of Israel astray. They thought that through their various worship techniques, really slashing themselves and doing all sorts of raving and maniacal things, that they could, um, well, I guess coax Baal into uh, doing something that would outdo the true God. And of course, none of that works. Meanwhile, Elijah sets up an altar and has uh, his servants put all sorts of water around it, puts the sacrifice on the altar, calls out to God from the sky to burn the, uh, the sacrifice on the altar. And indeed, God answers his prayer and burns not only the offering, but also uh, the water next to the altar as well. And so God acts mightily on his behalf and his enemies are defeated, at least most of them, certainly the other prophets of the false God. And then on top of that, God causes miraculous rain to fall upon the people of Israel. So you might think that Elijah would be riding high on that. I mean, that's quite a miracle. That's quite a series of miracles. But again, humanity is not so, we're not so stable. I mean, we, we are fickle and we are prone to living in the moment. And, you know, if one thing happened great yesterday, well, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be hunky-dory today. And so we pick up the story of chapter 19 where all of a sudden the tables turn. Or as Michael Scott would say it, the turntables. Verse 1. Ahab, that would be King Ahab of Israel, told Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You might expect Elijah would say, Go ahead, bring it on. Didn't you see the God I serve yesterday? Didn't you see the God I serve? He can do anything. I can call on him and he can wipe you out. But no, Elijah does not have that sort of confidence. He responds with fear. Then he was afraid, verse 3, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So obviously, Elijah, in spite of his great victory, is now full of fear and loathing in Israel, not Las Vegas, in Israel. And it's interesting, throughout Elijah's life, he only goes where he is led by God most of the time. Or, well, frankly, all the time. You can see in chapter 17, verses 2 through 5, or 8 through 10, or chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, that Elijah is very keen on seeking out the Lord's will as a prophet. He has this sort of access to God before he does anything, before he makes any moves. But in this case, it's different. His fear and discouragement lead him to flee on his own, by his own guidance. Oh, how applicable this is. Whenever we are struck by fear or get a sense of deep discouragement, it is oh so easy to strike out on our own, thinking at that moment that maybe God is not with us or that we've been abandoned or that we know better in the moment. I know I fall into this trap all of the time, much to my detriment. And so Elijah, even though he is a prophet that has been given the ability to do mighty things on behalf of God's name, is not so much different than us. As a matter of fact, it's even more than fear. Elijah, even after this great victory, is ready to give it all up. Look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now. O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It is just a remarkable testament in this story to how quickly our circumstances change and how quickly our attitudes change in response to our circumstances. It is just a fact of life that we are not in the perfect heaven and earth yet, and so we're prone to the same sense of discouragement, fear, and doubt. So what will God's response be to his mighty prophet? Well, God's response to the discourage, as much as it seems like it's crushing Elijah's life, is so good. <laughs> because in the midst of Elijah doubting and scared, God doesn't come and chide him. God provides for him. Look at verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, how good is God to provide for Elijah even when Elijah is fleeing from, well, the mission that God has given him? Even when Elijah wants to give it all up and is ready to die, 
God comes with provision. Second thing on a Christological note, this is most likely whenever you read the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, this is most likely what is known as a Christophany in where Jesus appears pre-incarnate in the form of the angel of the Lord to take care of his people. And indeed, he provides food for Elijah that gives him the strength to continue on. Nevertheless, what this does prove is this cliche saying that you may have seen on Instagram where the Lord guides, he provides, is not always true. In fact, in this case, the Lord didn't seem to guide at all. Elijah seemed to be the one that was trying to guide the ship. And yet, even still, because God is gracious, he provides so much better to see life like that, God is often, most of the time, working in spite of us, not because of us. And yet, God is not one that winks at sin or winks at our problems. He's not one that ignores our issues, but no, God is one who confronts. Look at what it says in verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. All true. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, there's something profound here that probably many of you have heard before, that as much as we're prone to thinking that God is in the mighty looking things, say like a, a violent wind or a really strong earthquake or a fire, God shows up here in a whisper. And yet a, a whisper from the Lord is holy enough to cause Elijah to feel the need to cover up before his presence. But the second thing I think is going on here that is important to note is that even though God confronts, he does so gently. Yes, he could have been in the wind. He could have been in the earthquake. He could have been in the fire, but he treats Elijah as his child. And indeed, if God wanted to confront him, there was reason to confront him. Not only is he fleeing from where God had called him to be, but in fact, if you listen between the lines, and it's really not hard to see, Elijah really does display a certain level of self-righteousness. I have been very jealous for the Lord, and I alone am the one who is serving the Lord. Now, I have no doubt that Elijah felt that at the moment. I think the emotion was genuine. But of course, it was not true. 
And so in the course of this narrative, God asks him twice a really important question. What are you doing here? I can't help but be reminded of our first parents in the garden where God, even though he is omniscient, he knows everything. And for that matter, he's omnipresent. I mean, he knows where he's in the midst of everything. When he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he doesn't come chiding. But again, he comes providing, he provides them clothing, and he asks a very simple question of his children. Where are you? God is gentle with his people even when we flee and even when we run away, even when we're consumed by doubt and discouragement and fear and loathing. And yet there is something to note here, and especially a devotion all about law and gospel, is this is a word of law. Sometimes the most soft question can be a word of accusation to us. Just the, just the question, what are you doing here? can be enough to knock us over. Indeed, the primary function of God's law is to confront us because by confronting us, it helps us to see clearly. It helps us to recognize that something is off. That's why we really never outgrow the need for God's law because we will always struggle with the flesh as sinners in this body. And so so God comes providing, God comes confronting, And yet that's not all he does because confrontation is not enough. It's good. The law of God is good, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, and we say a hearty amen to that. But the law is not enough. No, we need more than that. And so what God brings to Elijah is a brand new perspective. Look at verse 13b. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. Elijah repeats himself. He's not getting it. That's why, see, confrontation is not enough. I I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, Elijah seems to not be getting it, even though he's been confronted. He says the same thing twice. And so what does God do? God condescends to where Elijah is at in the moment. Again, because God is so gracious, the Lord said to him, verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. This is something that never occurred to Elijah. He's fleeing from the threat of death from Queen Jezebel for a moment, thinking that she's in fact more powerful than the God he serves, even though he'd just seen God do something incredible. Nevertheless, he needed a new perspective pointed out to him. He needed to see that what he was thinking the future held was not all that the future held. Indeed, I I can't help but think about people that struggle with suicidal ideation or great depths of depression. And in the moment, in the moment where they are having suicidal ideations, it seems like there is no other way. I can't help but think about the stories of people that have 
attempted to commit suicide jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, which the vast majority of the time people who do that do end up dying. But I can't help but thinking about the survivors. For example, this man here who says as soon as he jumped, as soon as he jumped, he asked God to save him and found that he wanted to live. As a matter of fact, I think every survivor they've interviewed has said instantly upon jumping they wished they hadn't. And yet in the moment, it seems like that's the only option. And for Elijah, it was that just, just a moment ago. I'm, I'm ready to go. I need to die, he says. And so God needs to bring us a new perspective. And in fact, the ultimate new perspective that we need to be forced to look upon by, by a preacher of any kind, whether it be an ordained one or just your friend or just your neighbor or just somebody you barely know, it doesn't matter. We need somebody to speak into our earballs, as, as Rod Rosenblatt says, that the new perspective is always pointed to Christ. Remember, the disciples of our Lord initially didn't see the whole picture when Jesus suffered on the cross. As a matter of fact, they thought that was the end and they run from him. All except the apostle John who commit to taking care of the mother of Jesus's mother, Mary, flee, abandon him, thinking the whole thing is done. But of course, Jesus arose and that's the whole point. In the moment, the bloody beaten pulp of a man being hung on the cross in front of them does not look like the leader of a brand new movement. But the resurrection shows there's a new perspective. And then finally, one thing that I love about this passage that God does for Elijah is he reminds him that in fact, you're not the only one, Elijah. You're not alone. And oh, how often do we need to be reminded of the same thing when we're discouraged and filled with fear, when we're ready to give it all up. We need to be reminded we're not alone. And so God says in verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. You thought you were alone. There's 7,000 of you that have not given in to the idolatry that Baal and his cult are offering and every mouth that has not kissed him. They're there. Don't worry, Elijah. And so it's as if God is saying about, well, not just himself, which is obvious that he can carry Elijah, but also that other people can. Other people can. Oh, how important it is to remember to talk to other people, to have other people speak into our lives when we feel like we can't go on. Indeed. So this word from 1 Kings is a word of encouragement for us. If we are feeling discouraged ourselves, if we are feeling like giving up, that in fact God is, God sees the end from the beginning. He knows what he's doing. And there's nowhere that that's more clear than when we look to the cross of Christ that looked like the ultimate defeat, but ultimately resulted in his resurrection, ascension, intercession, and one day his second coming to take us home forever. I hope that's been an encouragement to you. God's richest blessings to you as you go on with your week. I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday.